Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, back again for another episode of the Do More Good podcast. It's episode 88. How are you doing? Kenneth, I am very well, thank you. Very well. Though you're lucky to have me today. Very lucky. I was away last week. Uh, Went to the glamorous Isle of Wight for a week with the girls and um we took a call thursday night took a call from the ferry company you know first class first class travel all the way the ferry company said there's no way there is no way we are going to be running tomorrow so you need to make a dash for home now otherwise you are potentially here for another four days so uh yeah we had to evacuate the island (laughs) make a mad rush for it to make it down to the harbor to get on the last the last boat i mean i say it was dramatic there was still time for a three-course dinner (laughs) <laughs> in, this, in this mad rush off the island but yeah yeah it was good we managed to get back just in time before the you know back in a house made of made of bricks uh before the storm hit so yeah yeah so how about you, you yeah i'm okay i'm okay as i said at the start suffering with a little bit of that you know really terrible man flu um you know the You're sympathy levels boy. the sympathy sympathy levels in the house are at the maximum at the moment oh. for, for this uh for this no no but I'm, I'm okay I'm okay didn't have last week off half term so um yeah just been working through lots going on at work at the moment kind of feels like well obviously getting back to normal right it's mm. kind of things are things are moving away a bit of an announcements and things coming out I mean yeah I know there's different opinions on 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 what Boris has announced this week but we'll, we'll not go into them but yeah, I'm generally I'm generally okay. I'm I, like many. I survived Storm Eunice. I was stuck in here, stuck in my bunker, oh, watching yeah. watching from office. the outside yeah. in the new office. Um, yeah, I was a little bit worried like the roof was going to suddenly collapse <laughs> off or something at some point. But uh, no, I survived, and I'm glad to hear you did as well because this would be quite lonely without you, James. <laughs> That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me on the show in 88 episodes. Thank you. Yes. Um, But yeah, but we go on. We've got a a, a really great guest. I mean, I just absolutely love how we we get to to sit down with amazing people like we are going to in a moment. But we wanted to start, as as we normally do, a little bit of a topic. And obviously it's linked to our guest. What is your favorite Elton John song? Oof. this is a difficult one isn't it because there is such a back catalogue but I'm going the, the one that immediately came to mind Tiny Dancer and that's because of um, Almost Famous which is just like an epic film and the scene Tiny Dancer and they're on the, the coach and they're all singing and making friends again wonderful wonderful thing yeah nice um, I mean I, I just I, I, I was having a look because I knew we were recording today and I mean, I've maybe gone for a, a typical one probably like you have I've gone for, for your song as being my, my favourite but just researching Elton John's back catalogue is just like, wow. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad. 
It's yeah. unbelievable, isn't yeah. it? Like, in, it must be one of the most, uh, the biggest musicians of all time. I mean, yeah. it's just incredible. So, yeah, I went for your song. 1970 it was released absolutely beautiful love song very simple in its tones but um it was inducted into the grammy hall of fame and it only made it made number eight in the u.s billboard charts and number seven in the uk charts but um an absolute classic that just lasts the stretch of time between it being released and now still as good now as it as it was when it was released so you've done, you've done your research there very good very good i imagine he's much the same when he looks at our back catalogue over the last three years i mean he's got a 60 odd to look back on but you know got another another number one hit today haven't we so we absolutely have and obviously the link that we've just made is really uh we'll, we'll come to come on to it more now but i'll crack on with the introduction so our guest this week is the global chief executive officer of the elton john aids foundation which he has served for almost 20 years as international development director to the foundation she managed more than 60 million pounds in grants to programs in europe africa and asia before taking over the uk uk foundation as its executive director in the year 2008 when the us and uk foundations merged their operations in 2018 she assumed her current role as ceo during her tenure the foundation has become the sixth largest aids funder globally has saved the lives of over 5 million of the most marginalised people in the world and raised awareness of HIV amongst more than 100 million people. With a background in the commercial sector, where our guest managed a news information service for the UK leading print and electronic media, following over five years in print journalism and documentary filmmaking on health and current affairs, she has served on a number of boards, including for Comic Relief, the European Funders Group, and most recently, the UK's HIV Commission. We're pleased to welcome Anne Hazlitt to the Do More Good podcast. Hello, Anne. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much. Um, it is really lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. I mean, what a brilliant career and history. And, you know, I think, as I said at the start, before we started recording, really interested to hear more about 20 years for the foundation. But before we jump into that, like we do with most of our guests, we just like to go back to the start, to, to kind of your early career. We spoke a little bit there about in the introduction about, you know, you worked in the commercial sector before moving into to the charity sector. Can you just talk us a little bit about, about that time and, and how you made that leap? Yeah, so I was, I mean, a, a career in charity was never even remotely part of the plan as far as I was concerned. I got involved because, as you said at the start, I was working for a for an agency, this is this dates me. This is this is before you could Google anything you needed to know. This was providing journalists with advanced information about everything from politics to sport, fashion, current affairs, all that kind of stuff. But I had some people very, very close to me who I loved very much, one of whom was was my middle brother, who had been diagnosed with HIV. And I was watching these guys battle this disease sort of silently and not go for treatment and not tell anyone, not talk to anyone about it, because with pretty good justification, they they felt like instead of being met with love and compassion and, and acceptance, they would be rejected and people would recoil in horror. And this just seemed so awful to me. And so I volunteered for a couple of HIV organizations didn't quite feel like 
they were getting a huge amount of value out of me and I was really doing the right thing. And then someone asked me if I knew anyone who could design a database for a charity that they were involved with. And databases was something I knew something about because it was what we used in, in my professional work. And they said, this is an HIV charity. So I said, yeah, sure, I will, I will use my annual leave and I'll come in once a week for six or seven weeks and I'll help design this thing. And, and that's, how, that's how it started. And I really thought it would be, you know, my big contribution for sort of six weeks or eight weeks to do this. And then I would move on to something else. And here I am 20 years later. So, yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a deeply personal thing for you as well, then, that, you know, that connection you've got. Yeah, it is. It is deeply personal. I think, I mean, I think most people who work in charity or in development, it, it there's some deeply personal connection, even if they're not directly connected with the issue. There's something about it that kind of draws them, whether it's the feeling that people get left behind or the sense of injustice or uh, yeah, or whatever it is. But for me, it was it was very personal. Yeah. And I, I adored my middle brother and um, and uh, was very close to a lot of his friends. They were my they were a whole sort of phalanx of, of fabulous uncles when I was growing up, when I was a teenager. There was nothing better than having a group of of gay men in their 20s to vet every boyfriend and, and <laughs> tell me what I should or shouldn't be wearing. And uh, yeah, they were oh, absolutely it, wonderful. It sounds terrifying for the for potential boyfriends. I mean, <laughs> God, that is a dragon's den to be going into there. It? It, was, wow. it was a dragon's den. Yeah. And, and woe betide anybody who kind of stood me up on a date or <laughs> they were, you know, they were not to be crossed, but they were also... <laughs> So incredibly, incredibly just fun and kind and thoughtful. And in those teenage years where, you know, you're terribly self-conscious and um, desperately kind of wanting to be in the pack and so on, they gave me lots of fabulous advice and they were wonderful. So, yeah, I wanted I very much wanted to do something uh, for them. And although the developing the database was sort of uh, quite a long stretch, from helping them when I started to volunteer at the foundation. One thing that was a huge issue was it was before effective, really effective treatment. And so um, people got sick and, and really wasted away. And, you know, it's that kind of archetypal image that people think of with AIDS, with people terribly gaunt and thin. And, and it was a real problem. People didn't, people couldn't tolerate food and, and couldn't put on weight. And so I asked the people at the foundation at the time, it was pretty tiny. There was one guy who ran Elton's houses, life, his sort of private office, if you like, and had been involved in the music management and one employee and a couple, two employees and a couple of volunteers. And I asked them if I could look into the issue of food and how we could get people to put on weight. And at the time I was visiting quite a lot of these guys who were sadly in hospital, often not being visited by their family because their family didn't know they were gay or didn't know that they were living with HIV. And we developed uh, a system to put in kitchens in some of the main hospitals, uh, the wards in some of the hospitals where most AIDS patients were being treated. And at the time it was a pretty, it was a pretty grim affair. You know, there were frozen meals that got taken from, they came from Wales, they were plated up and put in trolleys and wheeled around the ward and they kind of defrosted and heated up as they were wheeled around. 
And if you weren't off having some kind of procedure done, if you were lucky, you got a sort of rather watery, lukewarm dish of something. Yeah, so we put in we put in kitchens at three of the big hospitals and I pulled all the nutritionists together to talk about how this would work and how we could how we could support this. And it ended up, although it cost money, obviously, to do it, the hospital ended up saving money because at the time they were desperately pumping these guys with build up drinks and antidiarrheals and, and all kinds of medicine. At the, at the end of the first year of the project, we brought together all of these nutritionists from Chelsea and Westminster and St. Mary's and, and the Royal Free and, and various other places. And one of them stood up and in tears said, this is the first time this week that any of my HIV patients has left the hospital having put on weight. And I never thought that would happen. And I never, I've never felt like my job is so worthwhile. And I was like, wow, I'm hooked. This is, this is very, very different from what I was doing before. And, and um, yeah, so uh, it, it sort of started a love of this idea of the, the enormous sense of fulfillment of helping people who, for, you know, through no fault of their own and bad circumstance and whatever, are in a really, really terrible situation. And how, how can you make that different for them? I love that. That's a, an amazing story about how to, to start. And there's a really key point, I think, for, for anyone who deals with volunteers, perhaps, that you say you worked with a couple of organisations who didn't, the, the connection wasn't quite there, you didn't feel like they were using your skills, and then suddenly you work with a different organisation who let you run with an idea and let you, you know, build something yourself and, something, you know, use your skills, and then, you know, we're here 20 years later on. Um, with that same spark still in you that's there's something there to be learned isn't there about that the ability of volunteers and how we use them yeah and it's hard I mean we struggle with it now because you know inevitably volunteers because their their experience and knowledge level is often low um, you know you end up giving volunteers stuff that's quite menial to do important and incredibly useful in freeing up other people's time I think at that stage people really didn't know an awful lot about HIV and AIDS. There weren't that many services available. So in some ways it was kind of, look, if you're here and you don't have a problem with this issue and you want to roll up your sleeves and get on with it, then we welcome you. But I would also say it's a, it's, it's probably very much a kind of uh, an environment that the foundation still has today. And that comes from Elton, this idea of look, there's a problem here right in front of us. What are we going to do about it? And, and we're open to all kinds of suggestions and ideas. We don't have a, a set view on how to approach a certain problem. So hopefully we still have that attitude. That sounds fantastic. And yeah, a great story. And I just want to go back a little, a little bit. So you talked about obviously that passion, that feeling that you had when you realised that you'd had a positive impact on, on these people that were, were going through this awful time. I just wonder for you personally, can you remember the moment when you kind of left your old life in terms of, you know, how you, your livelihood, your career that you had pre to kind of the foundation, when you, you left that and kind of went full time or, or, or salary or you were offered a proper job and just interested in what, what that felt like at the time, almost pro- imagining maybe you felt a bit of a fraud because you were giving your time anyway and you're like, what, you want to kind of pay me for this as well? How did, how did that work? So there's two things actually which come to mind. One was as we were doing the nutritionist project, the kitchen project, there was an idea to open a shop 
selling Elton's secondhand clothes. And I uh, said, oh, I don't think you should do that because if you get a shop and it's a full-time thing, even with a, a, a shopper as prolific as Elton, sooner or later, you know, the stock's going to get tired. You've got rent to pay. You've got, you've got staff to pay. What you should do is you should find, there's tons of empty commercial property in London, retail property. You should find one, tart it up. And then when Elton is performing in London, fill it with his clothes for three or four weeks, sell the lot and then close down. And of course, it's what we now call a pop-up shop. Yeah, anyway, so they they kind of strong arm me into, well, if you think it's such a good idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they get you. And um, so we did, we opened, we we had a, there was a little shop which used to belong to a jeweler called Theo Fennell down in South Kensington and he was moving out and we took the shop. And I remember, and really imposter syndrome, like, what am I doing sitting on the floor of this empty shop with thousands of items of Elton John's clothing, <laughs> marking them up for, you know, price wise. And I had someone in retail who was there to help me. And I remember turning up the first day that the shop was opening and it was like 8.30 in the morning. And I thought, oh my God, if this is a disaster, what am I gonna do? They're gonna kill me. And there were like 150 people queuing around the block and it's like, Oh my God, this is actually, right. this is going to work. I'm going to yeah. be all right. And so it was, and we made more money in three weeks than they'd made in a year. So they said, you know, will you stay? And can we, you know, we'll pay you for it. And, and then I think the second, you know, more profound thing was the first time I went on a field trip because although I'd seen lots of people in hospital in, in the UK, predominantly in London, who were sick and dying and had had lots of, very sad conversations with relatives and been to funerals and all that sort of awful stuff. It wasn't until I went on the first field trip and, and sat with people who had, I thought the people that I was dealing with in London had no support. These were people who had absolutely nothing. And I went to, uh, I went to visit um, a village in Western Kenya, which at the time was its HIV epidemic was out of control. And a woman came out of her house, her hut and uh, in a village, and she tried to hand me her baby. Cause she said, I, I have this disease, which they were calling slim at the time. I have this disease and I can't look after this child. And I remember a sort of dual sense of a, this is something now that you have entered into and it's your responsibility to do something meaningful about this. This has gone way beyond how can I help, you know, people I know and love. This is a real responsibility. And also, my God, this is so completely different and more vital and, um, yeah, more important than anything I'd ever done in my life. Hmm. Two really profound experiences there quite early on it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> very different but but yeah they're gonna that is going to impact your career isn't it that is going to change your life and then yeah. um, uh do you think i mean to go back to the the, the pioneer of pop-up shops you know do you think that was your commercial background that came to that and like a can-do you know like the knowledge of that or was it just a can-do attitude or was it that as you've talked about the the kind of attitude and the vision of the the foundation itself of just there's a problem go and fix it or maybe a com combination of all three probably it was probably a combination I knew about I knew about the empty 
the empty retail space because it was something we covered a lot you know the in in the work that I was doing with journalists there'd been a whole slew of of kind of articles and reports on vacant space and then yeah I mean I was to be honest I was shocked when Elton's then manager John Reed who was a pretty tough and persuasive individual said to me good so you'll do that and I said no no you don't understand I'm a volunteer <laughs> and he said oh so you don't actually think it's going to work I said no I think it would work I'm just saying I, I'm I'm not employed here I'm not and he went fine well we'll have to leave it then if you don't think it's going to work so oh. it was a it was a you know it was persuasive but I think also it was a it was an amazing openness to having a go at something yeah and and that's never gone. El- Elton Elton and his husband David really have that. Mm. Yep, if it makes sense, let's give it a go. I love that approach to like an innovation program where if you think it's a good idea, then you know you better come and do it. Just go with it and <laughs> yeah. run it. You know, yeah. fully backing it yourself if you think it's a good idea. It's great. It was a baptism by fire in yeah. in some ways, but yeah. And since then, we've done four more one in America and three others here. And they've raised, I mean, millions for the charity and have been a really, really lovely way because we don't, as a charity, we don't have lots of opportunities to engage with the general public. We tend to make, our, you know, generate our funds either from big contracts with government or foundations or from events, which I know the foundation's quite famous for, but the opportunity to kind of sell someone a five pound tie that used to belong to Elton John. And in the course of doing that, talk about our work. And obviously thousands of people came to these shops over the years. has been a real, a real pleasure and a privilege. And I think everyone, we all, the whole team, you know, development experts, uh, finance directors, you name it, the whole team, turned into shop girls for the for the duration of these projects. So we all got to talk about the work we love to do. It must be brilliant for Elton as well to have that perfect excuse that when he's going shopping, when David says, Elton, you've spent enough now. He's like, no, don't worry. Yeah. You know, we need stock for the next one. So yeah. I'm okay. The thing um, that's extraordinary that I couldn't get over was he has this massive memory recall for things he has the most extraordinary memory and in in literally hundreds and hundreds of items of clothing he would look at something and say oh I bought that in such and such when I was with oh no I want that I'll buy that back you know he would he would remember those things which was yeah quite amazing wow so and you know we'd like to talk about the foundation I mean you know 20 years as we said in the introduction you've kind of given us a little bit of a background in terms of the early days I'm sure you've been on a roller coaster journey for for 20 years I mean not only has AIDS as a a virus and a disease been on a journey but you've been along and involved with it for, for that many years can you just talk and I appreciate this is a very big question but what has that journey been like for you kind of being so engrossed in in this area and and seeing obviously developments and progress and then I'm sure at times things have fallen back and then you're operating on a, on a, on a global scale so there must be kind of progress in some areas and other places take a step back but can you just talk to us about what that experience has been like for you kind of within this uh, within the foundation? Yeah I mean it's what's extraordinary about sticking with one issue for so long as you say is that you you really get to understand the sort of pathways to change and the setbacks that go along along with that. So during the course of the time that I've been there, I've seen from 
you know, deep, deep stigma, terror that, that I mean, misinformed actually, but terror about we don't know how HIV is spread and anyone can get it and, and, and horrible victimization of the LGBT community through to, gosh, this, this treatment and it works and it saves people's lives and people who were kind of cashing in their pensions and their, and their life insurance are going back to work and isn't this extraordinary. And now we have, and it's been in sort of, weird going through this COVID era mm. where there's so many echoes of the HIV struggle because suddenly we had great tests, HIV tests, and they were easy to take. And we were talking about people needing to know their status. And, and then you get into the big macro elements of actually there are some big structural things that need to change in order to really make a difference to people's lives, how medication is delivered, or where the funding comes from and so on. So it's given me a much greater understanding of that sort of trajectory for lots of different issues. And you both, you know, you both work in, in this sector, you start to understand that there's no easy wins, that it's, mm. a, it's a process. And I think I probably thought that there were many more easy wins when I first started. But the thing that's been sort of in parallel with that, the thing that's been sort of hard sometimes and sad is is to see that you know HIV and AIDS started with stigma as its perhaps its most deadly uh, symptom and it still is even though we now have as I say great cheap testing amazing amazing medications um, that not only save people's lives but stop them being infectious a, a drug you can take before you're you have unprotected sex which will stop you getting HIV, you know, so many incredible scientific advances. And yet still everywhere where HIV is spreading in the world, it's because there's a real stigma and discrimination predominantly against people who are really marginalized, mm. people who are LGBT, people who are really poor, young people, people who sell sex, people who don't have control over their lives for one reason or another. So that's been sort of quite a sad part of the journey to see that that scenario played out in multiple countries over and over again yeah no I'm sure I'm sure it has and I think you know just reading some of the literature around the foundation um you know watching a few videos on your website uh, hearing from Elton and David talk about the foundation and what it means to them I think one of the things that really came out in that was the idea of love being at the the kind of core of the foundation's ethos and that really comes out. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it's a really interesting concept to, to be at the core of the foundation. And, and you, you mentioned about stigma is a massive issue in terms of HIV and AIDS, but you're conquering that stigma with love. And yeah, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, obviously, I had no problem with the, I had no problem with the stigma, because mm. it was personal to me, I knew people who I loved. And I think, that's how most people overcome their prejudices or, or being uncomfortable about certain things is when it becomes very real and personal to them. And everyone who started in the foundation, that was their experience. It was a very personal experience. And then Elton has always talked about love and compassion a lot. And as we developed strategy, particularly in, in the kind of early 2000s, he, he said, I want to write a book about this. And he wrote a book called Love is the Cure. I can remember being in a meeting with a whole load of people from 
the United Nations, from President Bill Clinton's initiative, science, social scientists and academics. And, and Elton started to talk about love and how love was the thing that actually would change the course of the AIDS epidemic. And even though I felt this very strongly, I was like, I'm not quite sure this is the audience to kind of get very touchy-feely and talk about love. And I'll never forget one of these epidemiologists said, you know, it's really interesting you say that because for the longest time, we've been separating HIV into you either spend money on the people who have it so far as you can, because the drugs are at that stage were still very expensive. Or you have to say, we can't, we can't worry about the people who already have it. We're going to focus all of our resources on people who are not infected to keep them safe. But actually what we've now discovered is that if you give people who are living with HIV the medication, not only do they survive, but they're no longer infectious. So it is prevention and treatment, the same side of the coin, but you need the love and compassion to look after the person who's sick in the first place. It sort of crystallized for me, this wasn't just an emotional feeling, this was actually a whole philosophy. Mm. But by leaving people behind, it was not only uh, the wrong thing to do morally, it was a dumb thing to do if you were trying to make the difference. And so it's been a cornerstone of, of every, of, of all of our strategic work ever since. And I think it's, you know, the more you see of what happens in the world with COVID most recently, you know, we need the love and compassion to understand that people thousands of miles away from us who aren't getting vaccines and, and don't have enough tests and don't have PPE, we need to love them. We need mm. to show compassion because it's, it's a human thing to do, but it's also how we end epidemics like COVID and HIV and others. Jimbo is off at the bar, which makes a change, and means I can tell you about the website, domoregood.uk. There you'll find profiles, blog posts, previous episodes, and a link to the newsletter if you fancy some VIP content in your inbox. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at domoregoodpod, plus you can find us on LinkedIn. We've even started a TikTok. Anyway, he's on his way back. Hang on a minute, are they shandies? You've, you've talked about um, your ambitions to, to get rid of this disease by 2030. And one of the cornerstones of that, you've said, you've talked about it elsewhere, has been around testing. Um, and you touched on it there. But that being the key uh, and reducing the stigma, um, showing a bit of love and, and um, encouraging people to test. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. And again, I think because of COVID, people, this all becomes much more familiar now, this idea of knowing your status, which mm. we banged on about for years and, and really didn't resonate with anybody. Now it means something to everybody because the treatments are, are so good now and so straightforward. And because the prices in many parts of the world where they need to be very cheap, they are very cheap. It's, it's a tragedy to think that there are people who are living with HIV who haven't been tested and therefore don't have access to life-saving treatments. You know, in, in the United States, where, you know, AIDS started, first, the first recorded cases uh, of AIDS in the, in the last sort of 40 years, where it started, 400,000 people out of the million people infected are HIV, they know it, and they're not on treatment. Wow. 
and you know in any other circumstance to have a 40% prevalence of people who should be accessing these medicines and aren't would be an absolute outrage i mean it's extraordinary that this happens so so one of our one of our um, objectives in that is how do we how do we link those people to treatment? And in that case, it's it's less about money because clearly it's not a money issue in America. It's a stigma issue. It's a stigma issue and it's a it's a the poor logistics in terms of the way the system works. But we do believe that if if people, if you normalize testing, and testing now is so simple that like a COVID test, you just take a swab and, and run it around your mouth. It's it's nicer, actually, than having to put something up your nose. Um, <laughs> then, you know, within a matter of minutes, you know your HIV status and there is medication that you can get onto, which is very straightforward and which will save your life and will mean that you can live a normal life, have children. A lot of the work that we've done in the past has been about what's called mother to child transmission of HIV. You can have healthy HIV free babies. And so the tragedy is, is, is when people aren't aware of that and aren't accessing the care that's available. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm really interested in how the organization operates today i mean you've spoken about projects in you know different parts of the world you've you've talked about research testing breaking stigma can you just give us a and again i appreciate it's a big question but just an overview of today how does the how does the charity function and and how do you decide where to partner with what type of contracts to take on how to spend the money to support in your beneficiaries so we i think we've always been very clear that we should do things that other people can't. We shouldn't right. try and, and, and you know, overlap or confuse things that are already working well with great organizations that do them. We should, we should champion them and let them and get out of their way, as it were. We very much focus on the most marginalized in society because it's harder for them to get the help that they need. And we sort of, we're a grant-making organization, so we don't have staff on the ground providing services. We fund organizations in the field, as you might say, that we think are doing great work and have developed a way of doing something that we think can really make a big difference. And then we sort of layer that with a couple of different things. We, we are, we're good at convening people. I mean, partly it's because of the name, obviously, but we've built up a, a broad range of expertise around HIV because we've been around for a long time. We've learned an awful lot of lessons and we've learned what works and what doesn't to a very large degree. So taking those organizations that we fund in the field and bringing them together with like-minded, with, with other people in the, in the sector, other stakeholders, you might say, whether it's local government, activists, people living with HIV and getting a consensus about what things would make the biggest change. And that might be more money. It might be a different way of doing things. It might be something technical, mm -hmm. like, gosh, we can take this whole service online and we'll save ourselves. We'll save, you know, all of these organizations, hundreds of thousands a year, or it might be a policy change where we actually need to talk to governments about decriminalizing homosexuality, for example. Mm -hmm. And so we fund on the ground, we bring these, these groups together, and then we advocate for whatever that change may be. And we use Elton's voice and David's voice, which, you know, is incredibly helpful to, to try and make that change. And the most recent one that we've done actually is, is in the UK, where we 
we ran a project with two hospitals and three GP federations, so a number of different GP surgeries in South London, which has the highest HIV prevalence in the country, to do what's called opt-out testing, where instead of having to exceptionally ask, uh, can, can I test you for HIV? You say, we test everybody for HIV in this borough. Do you have a problem with that? And the difference in terms of someone's response when you frame it that way goes from 60% of people saying no to 15, 20% of people saying no. So we ran this service in, in South London. We found a huge number of people who had not been found through any other health, health uh, intervention, health service. In particular, we found a lot of people from minority groups who weren't being picked up through any other service. And we came together with other charities, formed something called the HIV Commission and took it to, to well, then Matt Hancock and Michael Gove and, and the government. And last year, the government announced a £20 million package to roll out opt-out HIV testing in all high prevalence, HIV high prevalence areas in the country. Wow. That's the, that's the sort of what someone in my team calls the secret sauce. That's <laughs> that combination of we know what we're talking about because we're actually doing it on mm. the ground or we're funding people to do it on the ground and we're learning with them. We're bringing a broader group together so as we have proper consensus on whether this is the right thing to do. And then we're targeting what the change needs to be. So that's how we work. I love it. And it's all focused on, on solving the problem. But to go back to that point you made yeah. earlier on, get out of other people's way. If they're doing good work, we'll let them carry on doing that and we'll find another problem. And if it's a matter of shifting a question around and turning that on its head, then that solves the problem. Great. Let's go and do that. I love it. It's really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I think I think honestly, Elton and David and, and most people involved with the foundation would be and some problems obviously are much longer and intractable and climate change. And oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we would rather feel like we've made ourselves obsolete. <laughs> if there's yeah. a way to go, right, that works now. That's amazing. You don't, you know, you don't need us anymore. Is, is uh, there a frustration there for you that, that you can see fixes that you can? It's not as big as climate change, which is, you know, it's a huge, complex problem. Like if you were if everyone was testing, if everyone was opting out of testing, that would make a massive difference. Is there a frustration for you around that about you know some of the answers it's just getting people to to adopt the right behaviors if you like yeah yeah and and i think the biggest frustration as i say is that is that thing of watching countries go through the same trajectory and make the same mistakes and the biggest one of those and it feels like it's more of a it's actually a much broader societal issue as well is this thing of of equality and seeing people as equal and seeing people as humans you know we especially when we're threatened we kind of put people who aren't like us in a box and go well that's not our problem that's their problem I mean it isn't Pollyannaish it's true it is all our problem so that that's frustrating you know we work a lot in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and so obviously watching the events this week very carefully we've funded a lot of work in Ukraine and in Russia But Russia has the largest growing HIV epidemic in the world at the moment. And some of the things exacerbate that. There's quite strong homophobia and stigma against people who are gay, people who use drugs. And and there's a frustration there about wanting to say this route doesn't fix it. Even if you don't, if you don't kind of, if those people aren't 
top of your priority list or you don't feel they're deserving even still this is not this route is not going to fix it punishing them excluding them marginalizing them it's just going to come back at you later down the line yeah. and particularly with something like hiv because it's sexually transmitted and so you can't i mean beyond something airborne like covid there's nothing yeah. there's nothing that travels faster yeah yeah and I mean, absolutely amazing. And, you, and your passion for it comes through 20 years later. It's great to see that fire still raging in you for the work that you can do, which, you know, I'm sure, like like you said, James and I being around and working in the charity sector, I think it's always really inspiring for me, kind of seeing leaders who are still as passionate about the cause area and, and, and what they're trying, that change they're trying to implement or affect. Um, so yeah, con- congratulations for that. But we did want to just ask you a bit about Elton and, and working with Elton and David and, and the foundation. What's it like having Elton John as your boss? <laughs> <laughs> Was basically the question, although I'm, I'm sure he's not quite your boss. Weekly one-to-ones and things like that, maybe, I don't know. Uh, you don't do a lot of appraisals. <laughs> he's, I mean, you know, I would say this, but he's amazing. He's, he's so in terms of passion, Mm. He is still as passionate as he was the first time I saw him in an office in, in the foundation's little offices when I first volunteered. He's, he's, yeah, he really, and as I say, it's personal for him because he's lost a lot of friends and he's extraordinary to take on field trips. Unfortunately, we haven't done many recently, obviously, but, Mm. you know, to take him into the middle of a township or, or out in, in the most rural area you can possibly imagine and and have people go who's that that's like <laughs> you don't see a lot of people looking like that around here is you know fascinating but then he has an incredible ability and i i guess you know this this is obvious from his career as a as an entertainer and a musician he has an incredible ability to sit down with people in completely um sort of uh, extreme circumstances let's say people who are in extremists and connect with them and he loses all of the like he's not he's not a celebrity he's not a, he just connects with them mm-hmm. so that's that's always wonderful to see and that's that's very inspiring and he's very funny <laughs> he has a very wicked sense of humor he he's a he knows an extraordinary amount of detail about a vast number of things, which mm. kind of keeps you on your toes mm. because he will check with you if you're going home. So which line are you taking? So you're going to get on at Baker Street and you, and you, you know, you think you can't have been on a tube <laughs> for 50 years. Like how? How do you know that? Has an encyclopedic knowledge of sport, of art, of music, of he's a real, he's a real polymath, you know, so, um, which is fascinating, but yeah, it certainly keeps you on your toes. Yeah. That's how I feel working with, with Kenneth, very similar, very similar <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but, and it also gives you access to like, amazing prizes. And, you know, I think there's a deal going on with the eyewear brand that he's launching and that sort of thing opens you up to new audiences and allows you to, you know, in, in, get new support from from other areas perhaps as well it it does it does but I mean if you've seen any of that material in that even the idea the slogan for the eyewear collaboration with Walmart is look yourself and even that there's this undercurrent of 
be who you are and love who you are and love other people for who they are. It's a very, it's a very strong thing. But yes, the exciting thing about that, apart from the whatever it is, 113 different eyewear frames that are fun and funky and amazing, is that we're also working with Walmart on how do we massively expand HIV testing in the US oh. and, and how do we link those people to care. So it's a very, and, and we've done this in a number of different places and we have more to come. It's a very exciting kind of connection between what companies can do for you. Obviously, all charities look to look to corporate partnerships for funding, but it's, it's what else can they do? How else can they use their footprint, their reach to, to really further your mission? So yeah, that's, that's great. Interesting. And, uh, and, you know, we've never spoken, as we said at the start of this, to, to kind of anyone in, in your position that has kind of the name associated with the foundation that, that they're working with, with, particularly there can't be many that has a name such as, such as Elton John. I'm just interested in, again, kind of on the day to day, in terms of maybe some of those kind of brainstorming sessions that you might have with the team about either funding or projects or whatever it might be, where kind of the Elton John name is or Elton himself is quite an easy route to go down because, you know, you can use Elton or well, Elton potentially could contact this person and we can get in here or, or do this. How, how do you manage that? So to speak, because it feels like that could become everything, you know, if it leads to those opportunities, how, how do you manage that within the team? Well, I think there's, there's, I mean, to some extent, we have an opposite problem from most charities in that we have almost too many opportunities and options you know so the challenge is is really very strategically figuring out what are the ones that are going to make the difference Mm. and I think I went through a long phase where I particularly when I was running the whole grants program where I was trying very hard to distance us from Elton as in you must take us very seriously we don't want to we were frustrated because we were always reported in the press as Elton John A's foundation which hosts the white tie and tiara ball and here's a picture of Elizabeth Hurley beautiful and wonderful and loyal supporter she is it was like we were always just being channeled down that that one route and so we got very serious at one point now I think we found we found the right balance but it's also, you know, he's a he's an entertainer and he has a huge career. So mm. you don't you don't throw a lot of things at him. You find the things that are really going to make the huge difference, and then they're the ones that you go for. So a lot of it's about, sadly, is about saying no to things, to opportunities. And I, you know, colleagues and friends who work for other charities have said, "Oh my God, I would." Kill. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can yeah, imagine. Just something like that. But you know, I, so an example would be uh, a few years ago, Alt was awarded the Legion of Honor in France, which is awarded by by the president and because no good deed un- goes unpunished. It, I said to him, "Will we have to use the opportunity at the same time to lobby?" France, who at that stage was hosting a big uh, fundraising drive for the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and malaria. I have to talk to him about this. And because really there's no one else who's going to be in a position to do that and have that access. And because so much rested on it, you know, this is the biggest, one of the biggest multilateral institutions in the world. It has saved millions of people's lives um, dealing with the biggest three killer diseases in the world that's an opportunity to do something. Getting Elton to testify in front of uh, appropriations committee in the Senate when they're when they're looking at how much money they're going to give to international development and specifically around HIV and AIDS, they're things that are are absolutely worth his time because 
a change in that is is enormous. Um, mm. But yeah, there are a lot of other things that we say it's just not it's not the best use. If there's a very limited amount of times we can we can grab him and get him to do those things, this isn't one of them. You know. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad uh, I don't have his to do list. My goodness, lobby <laughs> France. That, <laughs> that is not on my list for this week. That is not. Wow. Yeah, amazing stuff. It's just fascinating, isn't it? As you as you talk there, it's you know, people and, and organisations would would work for twenty years to get that type of opportunity, and that's you know, and obviously you you understand the 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 the, the, the position that you are in, and yeah, it's it's just it's just fascinating, and I'm sure others will will find it fascinating because as you say, and I'm sure amongst some of your your peers and colleagues in in other charities, they're just like, oh, if only. If only we could have that opportunity. But, but, you know, that goes back to the convening thing I was talking about as well. We're never doing it unilaterally. We're never doing it on our own. So even with that, it's about what does everyone want out of this fundraising drive for the Global Fund? Who needs to have been consulted? How do we, you know, I made sure that Peter Sands, who's who's the executive director of the Global Fund, was in the room when that conversation happened because... In some ways, we're also the facilitator. And, and one of the things I learned a long time ago, and it's, you know, it's cliche, but it's true, is that you, you go furthest if you go together. And, and so we could do things where we'd be like, well, look at us. We'll get all the glory and all the publicity and all the and we'll raise all the funds. And that's that's really self-defeating. It's it's about what we do as a sector together. And to the extent that that the foundation and Elton can help with something that's going to make a huge difference like that, then that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Back to, I, back to solving the problem. Yeah, back exactly. Back to solving the problem. <laughs> I think that's a lovely note to, to wrap it up on. And I, I just want to, you know, from both James and I, thank you so much for, for giving us your time and, and sharing that insight. And as I say, the, the kind of passion still kind of runs through, runs through you like it did when you set up that pop-up shop you know, 20 years ago. And so, you know, we wish you lots of luck. I guess just the last question before we kind of start wrapping it up and let you go, what are your hopes now for the for the future, where the organisation, where it is, what do the next sort of five years look like? And is there anything kind of coming down the road that you really kind of, that's that's what we want to get after next? I think two, two really big things. One is, one is around young people, especially mm-hmm. young women, because young people very largely have a lot of the decisions about their sexual health made for them by other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have absolutely no, no say in that whatsoever. They don't get the information. They don't make the decisions. And there are five and a half thousand young women who become newly infected with HIV every week. So we've got a whole load of really exciting things planned about how to reach young people, especially young women, and not just around sexual health, but also mental health. I think one of the things we've realized in the last couple of years is how important our mental health is as important as our physical health. Mm-hmm. And mental health and sexual health have a huge relationship. They are syndemic. And a lot of young women, you know, deal with a lot of sexual abuse and coercive sex and so on. So that's, that's a big piece. And the other would be, I think, the LGBT community. We have a big portfolio of work and really for all the you know a lot of people think well AIDS is a gay disease and god they've got all these champions like Elton John and Princess Diana and Elizabeth Taylor and 
uh, over the years and they don't need any more help. But actually, when you look at when you look at the LGBT community and how much of the global epidemic HIV epidemic they make up and how much of the resources for that HIV epidemic they get, it's completely out of sync. So um, we want to try and we want to try and do something about that. And alongside that, there will be pushes to get people tested and and onto treatment. So yeah, that and helping helping rewire some of the dysfunction in 400,000 Americans not knowing their HIV status. <laughs> Just the, they would be, that's a good to-do list. <laughs> that's not a bad to-do list. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Right, well, and look, we're not going to let you go straight away. We have three questions that we drop in at the end of each of our episodes. So if you don't mind, we'll come on to those. James, do you want to go for the first one? I will do. I will do. I'm scary. No, oh, I was going to no. say. I was going to say that's the usual wide-eyed look that we get when we <laughs> when we mention that. But there's nothing to worry about. Question number one: If you could transport back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give, and why? Um, I think be braver, because all the things that I've done that have scared the hell out of me are the things that have taught me the most have moved me on in my thinking the most and have unlocked things. It's when I've been scared and thought, oh no, maybe not, better not, that, uh, that I feel like I've missed an opportunity, Ooh, yeah. That's a great one, great lesson. Can you tell us about one life hack or a productivity tool or a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? <laughs> oh, uh... Gosh, a life hack. I, I can oh, think on. of one thing, actually, which is, you know, and, and I think you mentioned before, James, about feeling frustrated about, you know, when you, when you know there are answers to things. But one of the things I have trained myself to do is before I express any opinion on anything is to ask at least three questions. Because I feel like we live in an age where with particularly with social media where people form instant opinions about things and they form them on the basis we all do on the basis of sound bites and incomplete information and it, it it sort of it limits your ability to understand someone else's point of view or see anything in the round so whenever I feel myself inclined to go no 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 that's ridiculous or that's rubbish or I force myself to ask three questions of someone about it and every single time it makes you go, oh, mm, okay, that's not quite as cut and dried as I thought it was going to be. That's that might be up one. there as the top that's one that we've ever had. That's pretty good. That is <laughs> very good. good. Yeah. That is very good. It yeah. definitely beats bananas and uh, pineapple <laughs> for breakfast. What was it? Someone, someone once told us they fry bananas for their breakfast. Eggs and so, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and eggs. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we've had everything, but that yeah, was that, That's very good. Final question. Well, after that, no, no pressure. But um, as a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what is your favourite story or inspiring individual you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? Oh God, that's a hard question. I know, I know it's cruel. Oh. Um, there's just so many people. So I can think of I can think of women particularly. I mean, there are so many amazing, amazing people. But one of the first people I ever met when I started doing this work was a woman called Noreen Kaliba. 
who was Ugandan. She and her husband had been living in the UK in, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, and he died of AIDS in England. And she was, she actually did have a good response from the nursing staff and from people who they knew in England. They were very loving and supportive. She went back to Uganda and no one would speak to her and they ostracized her in her village. And she started an organization called the AIDS Support Organization, TASO. It's now one of the biggest providers of HIV testing and medication anywhere in Africa. And she just stayed so real and humble. And, you know, she's since been on every kind of board you can think of and received all sorts of honors. And, and yeah, she just, she, she just stayed very real. And it was about people. It was about the people in front of her. So she was a huge, huge inspiration. Wow. Wow. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And look, we could sit here and talk to you all night. Thank you so much for being so open and and and, and sharing that insight. As we say, it's been really fascinating, very privileged to be able to sit here and talk to you. If anyone wants to kind of look for the foundation or find out more from you, are you on any social media channels or can anyone find, find you? Oh, yes, we're on everything. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Please do. We have a huge, this is the other side of, of the life. We have um, a huge event coming up for Oscars at the end of March. Please God, no variants mm-hmm. for then. So yeah, and lots of exciting announcements about that. It's a big fundraiser for us and it's also a big platform to talk about the work. So yeah, please follow us. Brilliant. Okay. Exciting. James, any final thoughts? Uh, just that you and I need to sort out some special sauce, have a clear out, find a lot on the King's Road and open a pop-up <laughs> shop for do my, do my good secondhand clothes. <laughs> I think it's a winner. The stock is quite important, though. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be London Marathon regalia, because that's where I work, obviously. And James has got a few dodgy T-shirts hidden away somewhere. So uh, We had yeah. good stock. And, and as luck would have it, my husband is the same shoe size as Elton. So he that's came, he came, <laughs> he works in telly. He makes, he makes um, science documentaries. So he's not the normal person to do this. He, he came into the shop and he turned into Imelda Marcos. <laughs> he bought he bought like nine pairs of shoes yeah, you would you i said would. i've only ever seen you buy one pair of shoes he said yeah but look at these they're amazing and they fit me i'm cinderella <laughs> brilliant and thank you so much we'll wrap it up there take care thank have a great pleasure. evening nice to meet you thanks yeah, thank you thank you bye before cinderella leaves the ball you can find out more about the oscars party featuring gaga and billy porter at the website, eltonjohnaidsfoundation.org. And as Anne says, they're on Twitter and Instagram, at EJAF. Streamers can find them on YouTube, and they're on LinkedIn for the professional business people too. That's it. Tune in next time for news on the DMG pop-up. Just before we go, can we ask you a favour? If you enjoyed this episode, and you made it this far after all, and want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd really love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.